The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. Michael Clifford, I'll start with you, special correspondent of the Irish Examiner for the week trending, because we've been talking a lot all week about the video that we saw from Monday evening of the Garda car being rammed uh, by two stolen cars in Cherry Orchard in uh, Ballyfermot. And we just heard there from Ben on the news headlines, the Justice Minister, Helen McEntee, saying that no community is going to be terrorised by antisocial behaviour. But isn't the reality that many communities already are and have been for a long time? And this sounds very dangerously like lip service to the idea of sorting it out. I think completely, Matt. I mean, you know, and have been, you're talking about hasn't just been for the last couple of years, it's been going on for decades. And uh, it is no coincidence that this kind of thing is happening in communities that have suffered serious deprivation. Uh, it's no coincidence that the youngsters, and they tend to be teenagers up to their early 20s, possibly. Uh, would all feel very much alienated from society. And that's not an easy sort of wishy-washy answer. Anything. That is the reality. These things are not happening in Fox Rock. They're not happening in the better suburbs of Cork or Limerick or whatever. This is where they're happening. And there's a very good reason why they are happening. Now, that's the, the, the incidents that happen, the guards are rightly pursuing that with the full rigours of the law. But the point is, anybody who wants to try and ensure that there is not a repeat or that others who were there that night observing it don't end up getting involved in the same thing, you have to address the underlying issues. And there are deep underlying issues in these some of these areas. And they involve not a huge number of families. But those families it do, does involve, it tends to be intergenerational. And you have to have targeted services going in there, not having services that people can come out and access, but literally the services going in there to make some sort of an impact so, on life. Michael Clifford, yeah. what sort of services do you mean? Because, I mean, there are people who say that there have been various youth clubs and sporting facilities and everything put in, and a certain small cohort, as you say, it's a small cohort do this, ignore whatever is put there for them and just decide to behave as they want to anyway. All the evidence, Matt, is not a question of them ignoring it. It's a question that their upbringing has been and is such that they're not in a position to simply avail of resources that will be there for most people. We're talking about people who are coming from families that have very serious problems and wherever you have very serious problems the rearing of children in those families is exponentially different and the type uh, difficult excuse me and the type of upbringing they have is exponentially different from what the rest of us may have had even in very basic things for example in some of these families if one of the children had a disability the impact that has on the parents is far far greater than people who, who might have a child with a disability in, in more outside of those kind of, of families and what have you. So, I mean, these are real things. People don't want to face up to it. It's very easy to say, this is all down, bring down the hammer. That's grand. That's all very well. That will not deal with the problem. And this is not wishy-washy stuff. This is just the reality of why there is crime, uh, that's that kind of crime among that relatively small cohort. Okay, Laura Byrne, I know we've had problems connecting with you, so I don't know how much of Michael Clifford you've actually heard there. Laura Byrne with us, assistant news editor of the journal.ie. But would you subscribe to Michael's view that this is a societal issue that if there's an absence of resources in areas of relative deprivation and poverty, this is what will result? 
Yeah, I, I have to say I agree 100% across uh, most of what Mick said there. And he's right. It's not simple. This idea that you throw a few more uh, police cars into an area and it's all going to be sorted is absolutely it's ridiculous. Uh, society has to get real about the damage that is happening to some very young children. And as Mick said, he's 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 bang on there. You can build as many swimming pools and libraries and whatever you want in an area like the likes of Ballyfermot and many areas like that, as we know. But if children are in a difficult circumstance when they're young, you have to talk to the likes of their teachers. You have to try and uh, get them for, via community uh, action. And we have to get real here. We're on the back of austerity in the last decade and local community groups, they suffered big time at the hands of austerity. So it's very easy for politicians on either side of the of the divide there to come in and say this, this, but, this. But sorry, this. Laura, can I not put to you that there are plenty of parents of children in those areas who would never allow their teenagers to be out behaving in the way that we saw on Monday night. And that it can be at times a little bit patronising towards people to say that, oh, you're living in a terrible area so we can understand why terrible things happen. No, and I agree, Matt. And I do think there has to be some role here for parents. It's very like I all week we've all been looking at what happened. And I, I mean, I know plenty of guards who have worked in these areas and they were saying this happens every day of the week. It just happened to be caught on video. So this is nothing new. I live in the Dublin 8 area and in antisocial behaviour is really just kind of escalated since the pandemic. So something is going on here. I also know teachers who work with disadvantaged kids and they say, honest to God, if you don't get them by the age of five to seven, you're, 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 it's too late. And there are, as, as Mick said, if there are families who have children with disabilities and they're not getting the care and they're not getting the support they need, look, don't get me wrong, there has to be law and order and there has to be a greater, I think it has to be multi-pronged. I'm not the expert on this, but I think the simple answer is not the answer. Okay, let's move on to other things. Michael, you want to come back in there? Yeah, just one other thing. I mean, you mentioned there, like, it being patronising about people who live in the area. You could have people on the same street, and excuse me, you do, I'm very sure, have people on the same street as where some of these people who come out who end up doing this sort of thing are on. And they grow up in a different world. They're in the same street, but they're in a different world because of the home environment in which they grow up in. So it's not a thing to do specifically with areas it's to do with a small number of families within areas. Those areas are deprived yeah. to begin with. And when you when you put that in a scenario whereby you often have parents that are sometimes incapable of giving the, 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 so, the so kind hang of on, care. Michael. So, so what do you do then? Because we used to have a scenario in this country decades ago where children would be extracted from families like that. And now that happens on a very rare basis because we have an emphasis on keeping families together all the time. Are you suggesting that that's the wrong thing? That there are parents been left for children who shouldn't be because they can't cope? No, I'm suggesting that the, the outreach is the type of way that you approach these things. You have people that are able to liaise with the families. It's resources, Matt. It's resources yeah. in that sense. Targeted resources to help people to ensure that at the very least, children who are being brought up in difficult circumstances have some chance of a relatively normal upbringing. So, Laura Byrne, let's talk about resources been sent to Africa, because this week Tommy Tiernan has gone Bono-like and has attacked the government for not devoting enough of its resources towards saving the third world. Tell us about this. 
Yeah, so I, I, I suppose Tommy Tiernan, he's around long enough that when he speaks, people listen and he does have a great platform, uh, mostly on the back of his TV show and he, he has a very good podcast, Tommy Hector and Lorita. So he was with uh, Trokra on a, on a visit to the Horn of Africa and he uh, essentially, Ireland, when you think about it, we're a wealthy country. We're very high up in the, in the rankings of wealthy countries in the world. We forget this. And we have committed to giving 0.7% of our GDP to overseas development and aid. And we haven't reached that target, lo and behold. We and we do have a good uh, background in aid, but maybe on the back of the last 15 years of austerity or whatever, things haven't, we haven't reached it. And he pulled them up and he said, you know, why uh, Ireland has the money. Why aren't we doing it? You know, things are getting worse uh, when it comes, people are, you know, in the Horn of Africa in particular is in a very bad way. And uh, he was speaking to our political correspondent, Christina Finn, or he, he made the comments during the week. And then she uh, was in at the UN conference in New York and met Minister Simon Coveney. And he told us that the government's commitment is still there. Now, it's st- it might still be there. But, uh, you know, he's promising significant increases in the in the budget next week. But we'll have to see. Of course, Michael Clifford, the government is spending or did spend this year over a billion euro on foreign aid. That's a lot of money at a time when we're also spending over 200 million on refugees from Ukraine. And when there is an enormous pressure now on the government finances in relation to energy bills and whatever, isn't a billion euro not a significant amount for this country's government funds to be offering each year? It, it is very significant, Matt, and I suppose the issue comes down to that if uh, the reason we came up with the 0.7% of GDP in the first place was that it was a sort of a commitment that relative to how well or badly the country is doing, we should uh, give that level of percentage rather than a specific figure uh, towards the developing world. And you might recall prior to the economic crash, there was continual efforts to do so, but thereafter, once things started to squeeze, that came back again and we have never come near it. And look, it's always going to be a difficult sell for politicians. We've done better here than they have in the likes of the UK and a few other places. But, you know, if, if we have a commitment there that we believe that there should be 0.7%, then, you know, there is an obligation to strive for it. But as you say, look, there are so many aspects of, of society where resources are required at the moment, it is a difficult sell for the government. There's no question about it. And isn't it an issue with charity? Is charity something government should be doing, uh, international charity, Laura? I mean, if people want to contribute to Troker or other organisations, is that not a personal issue rather than having the government to decide that that's where the tax revenue goes? Well, I mean, Mick is right. It's a tough sell. It's not the kind of thing people talk about on the doorsteps ahead of an election. But let's be honest, this isn't this isn't charity so much as global responsibility. We're living in a very precarious time. We have real uh, climate crisis issues, and and the problem with the you know with the climate crisis is that if you look at the recent flooding in Pakistan, it's the countries who are in the greatest need are paying the greatest price. So we do have the onus is on the wealthier countries, and I think it, again it's very hard for us to 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 remind ourselves that we are a wealthy country, and we may not have the most uh, equal distribution of wealth in this country and we have lots of issues, but we are in the top 10 of wealthy countries. So we do have a responsibility because things are going to get worse and they are getting worse a lot faster than everyone expected. 
listener here, rural Desh primary teacher says there is an increase in antisocial behaviour in disadvantaged rural Ireland as well. But the home school community liaison teachers were removed by the government 11 years ago from Desh rural schools. This is socially unjust and unfair and must be restored. Let's get a slightly lighter story before we go to the break, Laura, because this is heavy stuff we've been dealing with. Uh, mm-hmm. Tell us about Brian O'Driscoll and his dog, please, Laura. Oh, God, Matt, this made my week. This, I just thought this was gas. Um, Brian O'Driscoll has, they've a love himself and his wife, Amy Huberman. They've a lovely little uh, uh, sort of a poodle type dog, lots of hair. So probably spend a fortune at the groomers. I know the, what it's like myself. We have two little dogs to bring them costs a fortune. Uh, he kind of put a picture on Instagram during the week and he said, I thought they'd cut his face a little bit too short because his hair had gone a bit brighter. He brought the wrong dog back from the groomers and how well like I look at I go to the groomers and there's probably six or eight dogs sitting there I know my two I have two little shih tzu type things and they know me but a lot of dogs look like Brian and and uh, Amy's dogs we took this poor dog home who apparently was a lot quieter than the dog they have and maybe spent about 20 minutes probably looking at them thinking am I okay is this part oh, well, of the service uh, apparently <laughs> to Amy's post 23 seconds because she said that's not our dog and sent it back on but I had to bring that story up deliberately because that happened in this house as well because <laughs> Aileen, my wife, did that once. She got back to the car with dog in arms, handed the dog over to one of my children who looked at her and said, you know, that isn't Scout. And she went, oh, Jesus, and ran back in with the wrong dog. And our poor dog was standing there, traumatised, standing there looking at Aileen to say like, is this some sort of cruel practical joke? You've taken another dog and walked out on me. I don't think the dog recovered for a week after that. Let's go to a story from Germany, Mick. Are you still an eat meat eater or are you a vegetarian? Oh, jeez. Uh, I'm still in the odd steak there, Matt, I have to say. Okay, well, you wouldn't be popular with PETA in Germany, so would you? Why not? I wouldn't because PETA, they're an animal rights group. They've suggested that uh, men cause more greenhouse gas emissions than women and uh, therefore men who eat meat should be banned from having sex. Um, They're suggesting that there should be a sex ban on all meat-eating men and they call on women to go on sex strike to save the world and that uh, global warming to this extent is a symptom of, guess what, toxic masculinity. Is this an example, though, perhaps of, you know, people with good intentions going so far over the top that it becomes counterproductive to their end goal? No question in the world, Matt. That's symptomatic of an awful lot of people, (laughs) if you ask me. But I mean, how can you take the thing seriously? Like, you know, I mean, now, look, there's also an issue to this extent. There's a sense of desperation in some quarters from people who are very serious about climate change because no matter what way you look at it, uh, both at political level and I'd suggest even among the public, um, people I think are not yet prepared for the kind of transformative change that would be required if we are to tackle it the way the science says we need to tackle it. Let's move to something we briefly addressed last week, but which has rumbled on for a week, Laura Byrne, and that's... um, Holly and what's your man's name? Philip Schofield. Holly Willoughby and Philip Schofield from the ITV's Good Morning Show. Are there careers in threat because of an alleged uh, queue skipping at the lying in state for the British Queen Elizabeth? 
Yeah, this is a funny one because obviously we watched 10 days of the UK having sort of a collective meltdown and it's very easy for us to stand on this side of the Irish Sea and kind of go, cheapers, what's going on over there? And look, it was what it was and there was a lot of queuing and people were in queues for 24 hours and David Beckham was in the queue. And like Holly Willoughby and Philip Schofield, you would have thought are part of the kind of morning TV darlings, you know, they'd be on the popular side of things. But somehow uh, some people in the press were allowed into the gallery or in, into uh, Westminster Hall last Friday when the, the Queen was lying in state. And someone took pictures of them via the live feed and it, and it went viral on, on uh, social media. And the suggestion was that they had jumped the queue. And of course, lots of the UK media dying for a new line at the time. We're thinking, right, let's go for it. And we had lots of spokespeople out from various quarters saying, that's it. They've got to go off with their heads. And But sorry, there's a it, campaign. I mean, there's like a cancel campaign going on. But about yeah. 30,000 signatures at this stage. I know it's bonkers. And look, I don't know why they left it so long to come out, though. This is the thing. They only came out during the week uh, and did a a sort of a pre-recorded statement on their show saying, actually, no, we didn't skip the queue. We were there as part of a group of journalists and broadcasters and we were allowed in. Now, that seems fine because I think all the global leaders did the same. They went into a kind of a, you know, they were up the steps a bit. So either they skipped the queue or they didn't. So if they didn't, I don't understand what the hysteria is. But I I was waiting for someone to come along and go, well, actually, they did skip the queue. They stepped in front of me, so I don't know what they're talking about. But there doesn't seem to be any suggestion that they have skipped the queue now. I think it's just... Okay, another mad story. And Michael, yes. One thing sums it up, and that's the organiser of that petition. I think uh, the woman's name is Laura Harrison. And the quote, this sums it all up for you, she said, it's about the TV show being toxic and these producers being given privileges that deprive others and humiliate their own viewers in the process. I mean, come down off the stage. (laughs) How ludicrous can you get when that's the, the, the line that's being used to start this campaign? Yeah. We can top to something, though, for being ludicrous, and that is the new Little Mermaid live-action movie, which is due for release next year, but some videos have come out. And uh, tell us about the backlash in relation to this one, Laura. Yeah, so famous uh, Little Mermaid film. Everyone knows that it's a, it's a, an, a classic cartoon, and uh, Disney are bringing out in May 2023, they're bringing out a new version, a live version, and uh, a young actress called Halle Bailey is not not to be uh, mixed up with Halle Berry has has the role of Ariel, the lead character who become is the Little Mermaid. And this has been doing the rounds. It was uh, they released a bit of a trailer recently, and I've seen a lot of very cute footage on Instagram and TikTok of young black kids looking at at this Ariel, saying, "Oh, she's brown." And, you know, really, it's it's got a lovely vibe behind it and all of that. So it seemed like a very positive thing and it was inclusive. And the idea is that, you know, it's a, a little bit more representative of modern of modern society. So that's all good. But Halle Bailey had to come out and release a, a video to her YouTube channel because she was getting such bad uh, responses. I mean, lo and behold, the racists have had great crack with this. So two million people gave it a thumbs down because she isn't Caucasian and it's not, authentic, quote unquote, authentic. Good Lord. I just, I despair. I mean, Michael Clifford, what sort of people would get up and get annoyed about the fact that they would think, oh, the little mermaid Ariel, she was white. You can't have somebody of a different colour cast in a role. I mean, yeah. Yeah. What, where are these people coming from? 
Yeah, I mean, the, 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 there is that element to it, Matt, and there's another element that it, it, does it reflect a, a kind of a deep-rooted racism among some people that only shows its head um, when situations like this arise. But it, it's, it's certainly ugly. And I mean, you know, you could go back to history and, and the idea uh, we have cast this Caucasian so many people right down to the likes of Jesus Christ, possibly, and others. And uh, that's in, in, in been passed down the consciousness through generations. And maybe now this is just reflecting what perhaps might have been reality. But it is, it, it's a bit worrying that somebody like that, particularly a young actor like that, like Halle Bailey, would be targeted in this way. It, 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 there's something a small bit worrying about it beyond it being crazy as well, you know. Michael Clifford from the Irish Examiner and Laura Byrne from the Journal.ie. Thank you both very much. The last word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4 30.